Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 6, 2016. The share ID number for Friday, March 4th, is 8510. That's 8510. This morning, A Vision for You presents Fear, the Evil and Corroding Thread. Time for a new fabric. In step one, we conceded powerlessness, the realization that we are doomed. And we're not doomed because of our allergy of the body, but because of our mental obsession. The essence of what the 12 steps do for us is remove the things that block us from the higher power deep down within us. Step four begins this process of unblocking aspects of self that have defeated us. The big book on page 67 says that fear somehow touches every aspect of our lives. Here to speak this morning about how the big book approaches fear and the process to unblock it is Larry, a recovered compulsive overeater from Chicago. Larry is devoted to the 12-step way of life and enthusiastically devoted to carrying the message of recovery. And I welcome Larry Kay to the line this morning. Good morning, Leah. Leah, can you hear me all right? You sound great. Okay. Oh, thanks so much for your service. Um, You just lost about uh, 100 callers here when you announced it was me. (laughs) No. um, So I'm not fearful on that one. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thanks, Leah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk about fear, and so I'm going to I'm going to talk this morning about our fears, about mine in particular, and and how we stay stuck in them, and how we remain uh, tethered to that uh, unmovable post of despair, you know, unable to be released from from the horror, which which was fear for me. And um, as Leah said, you know. You know, as, as all things we do on vision, you know, I'm going to talk, uh, I'm going to get into the big book because that is what, um, what, what got me well and, and fear was a huge thing for me. And I'm going to, I'm going to develop that a little bit. So you see if you, if some of what I say resonates with you. Um, so we're going to examine this notion of fear and anxiety from a program perspective with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous as our guide. You know, I, I, I say this because these days, I'm literally unable to examine any of the common manifestations of this illness through anything but through a filter of, of spiritual transformation as the result of these steps. It's, it's, it's become so ingrained uh, in me. You know, but before I get started, I, I, I want to I share the story. of the, If you've ever heard the story of the tethered elephant, okay, and, and no pun intended. I was pretty big, but, but this, is, this is literally a story, which you'll, hopefully you'll see the humor in this and, and the, the, the instruction in this. It's called the tethered elephant, and, and perhaps you've heard it before. And I think we can learn a lot from this story. You see, soon after a, a circus elephant is born, you know, one of its legs is actually tethered by a short rope tied to a post to keep the animal from running away. And that's, that's what they do with circus elephants. And, uh, and yet, when the elephant grows to be this, this large animal, you know, two tons of power, you know, it's still tethered by that same small rope. 
even though, you know, obviously the elephant could easily snap that rope and, and run, run to freedom, guess what? You know, this large animal doesn't even make an effort at freeing itself. And so the question, why is that? Because I think, you know, that's at the core of what we're talking about here. See, because the elephant was conditioned from birth that as long as the rope was on its, you know, on its, on its leg, you know, there was no escape. You know, this elephant believed, you know, believed it even though it was no longer true. And the word conditioned merely means learned. You know, how have we, how, how have I been conditioned? How have I learned to remain tethered to the post of my fears? You know, perhaps we were roped in by, uh, you know, like an imaginary conception of our higher power, you know, was no match for this, this seemingly hardened steel that keeps us imprisoned you know, this disease, maybe that was our rope, you know, and, and maybe we, you know, we believe that we surmise that, that all of these fears must be valid and true because they were, they were instilled in us, you know, by the very people who loved us most perhaps and, and wanted to, you know, wanted, they wanted to protect us from these horrors. And, you know, this program has taught me many things. And, and here's one of them. You see, I believe that faith and fear often can exist together, but I've experienced the powerful transcendence that comes in practicing these steps. So that one fear strikes, you know, what do I need most during the difficult time, that challenging time, I need, I need my faith. And, and this program has given me, has given me a, a basis in which to practice that. You know, there's something about the love of my higher power that breaks down the walls of fear you know, in, in, in this quest for peace. And I've learned that God cares for me in ways that I could never comprehend. And it's, it's in this love that, that seems to cast out the fears. But, you know, I, I can talk as a recovered person, but I want to I backtrack a little bit here before we get into to the big book and, and, and specifically focus on the fourth step, that fear inventory. I'm going to share with you some of the manifestations of my personal fears, you know, before I arrived here before I work this program that, so that you'll have a better idea, you know, maybe of some of the origin of this fear-based thinking. Because for me, I don't know about you, but for me, much of it started pretty early on in my life. And perhaps, you know, you may find some points of identification along the way. Because after all, this is a program of identification. Yeah, I'm going to start by telling you, my, my mother was addicted to amphetamines starting in the early 1960s. My father, uh, as a pharmacist, was her, her supplier. And some of you on the line may recall that, you know, America's first amphetamine epidemic uh, happened largely, you know, from the 1940s through pretty much the early 70s. And along with the growth in amphetamine use for, for psychiatric indications, you know, for different things. During the war years, we also saw an explosion of amphetamine consumption for weight loss. Can any of you on the line remember that? I, I have a feeling some of you, you know, probably can. You know, any big surprise that eating disorders, you know, that allergy of the body, you might have a genetic basis. Well, you know, guess whose mom was so strung out on speed, on amphetamines, that she, you know, you know we, we chuckle a little bit now, but it's not so funny. Uh, she had the cleanest house in the neighborhood along, you know, with caring for four children all under the age of 10. You know, she was addicted to amphetamines, but she didn't know it. 
So at the peak of my mom's addiction to, to, to the likes of Benzedrine, you remember some of these names, Dexedrine in the early 60s and early 70s, while I was between, you know, five and 10 years of age, you know, she was a pretty scary person and almost psychotic at times. And these were some of my early memories, and, and, and we get to some of the origins of the fear. There, there was one time that, I, I mean, I vividly remember. I couldn't have been more than three or four at the time. Um, and, and all I remember was being alone with her one afternoon with my mom while my older, two older brothers were in school. Of course, my, 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 my sister had not been born yet. Dad was at work. And she got this weird sort of grimacing look on her face. And, and the next thing, you know, I know she's, she's charging after me around the table. Now, I remember that for, you know, four decades, 45 years later, I got so scared. Can you imagine how, you know, uh, imprinted, you know, upon one's memory it would have to be for this fear to be locked into my memory 45 years later? Now, here's the catch. See, she, she was amusing herself. She, she was taking joy and scaring me. She didn't mean any harm. You know, she just was in that state. And after about a minute, she began to laugh. I remember that, you know, it was, it was kind of a joke to her. And, and, and she was a loving mother in so many ways. And I'm not, I'm not you know, trying to, to make light of it. But, you know, again, thinking back of the pure terror when your caregiver, you know, your mother in this case, the, the, the person you see comfort from becomes a monster in your eyes. Well, that memory is clear to me. And, and guess what? Things did get worse. Um, she had a mental breakdown when I was about seven years old. Anyone on the line, ha you know, have a seven-year-old, maybe a grandchild or, or you know, for those younger women, women or men, a, a seven-year-old at home or perhaps someone in your family, you, you know what that, that, that little baby looks like essentially, right? It's a, it's a little child, a meek little child. You know, and there was one day she just, my mom lost it. She had a psychotic, I would call it manic break so severe. She began tearing up the house, screaming and crying, bloody murder. She, I remember her throwing dishes and breaking glasses against the wall, you know, turning over tables. I do remember specifically her tearing and, and thrashing curtains, pulling them off their rods. And, and I remember, um, you know, trying to make sense of it all. You know, she was angry at her life. She screamed, you know, how she was done being a mom, done being married. You know, sometimes it's a miracle that I, that I was able to maintain sanity, that there, there was a God even at those, in, in those moments. You see, my, my father wasn't around. He, he was a pharmacist. He worked at a small mom-and-pop pharmacy in Chicago most, you know, all day. And I, I don't remember him being around much. So we were left in the care of my mom, you know, psychotic at times, amphetamine addicted. We, we'd probably call it bipolar today. The term wasn't around back then. A compulsive binge eater, sure. And by the, by the way, in those moments when she was sane, she could be very loving, caring. Maybe some of, some of the moms on the line could, could relate. All the more reason that this was completely irrational and unpredictable in my eyes. You see, children raised by, by caregivers, ma, ma, a mother in my case with, with disorders, are, are negatively affected with regard to their own, you know, the way we attach to people and how we, 
you know, develop coping mechanisms and how we social, you know, socialize later in life. And, and we're more prone to, to self-medicate and succumb to addictions and become abusive in relationships, all the things that manifested in my, my spiritual malady. You know, a relationship with the higher power, kind of a difficult trick when, when you never learned how to trust your primary caregiver, you know, someone that you can see. See, my mother went on to divorce my father when I was nine, and she had remarried by the time I was 10 to a man from California that I never met until she moved me and my, my three siblings then uh, from the Chicago suburbs to the, the San Fernando Valley in California. Some of you, you know, live out there now. I mean, you talk about fear and culture shock and confusion and profound sadness, separation from my father. He, he was still in Chicago. It hit me hard. And I, I remember one, one thing. Yeah, I remember stealing a bottle of his cheap cologne so I could have a remembrance of his scent to comfort me. And, and it did, especially when my stepdad began to physically and emotionally abuse me uh, and my siblings. Um, he was, you know, he was, he was crazy like my mother and, and, and he targeted me and I, I, I looked like my father back then. I do, I'm a you know, spitting image. My, my father's been passed for over two years, but I look just like my father. And I had the hardest time with that move. And I remember my stepfather shaming me for having um, this term they called mental problems. Of course, I was about 10, 11. I suspect, you know, that they couldn't understand why I was always crying and hurting and depressed. And, and it must have made them terribly uncomfortable. And there was a lot of fear. You know, and, and, and I remember them shaming me, saying that if things didn't change there, they sat me down. You're going to have to see a psychiatrist. I didn't know what a psychiatrist was. I just knew that the look in their eyes and how they, how they talked about it, it was something to feel bad about and something that I didn't want to do. And this was framed in a, in a shaming punishment for my behavior that I couldn't, I couldn't control. See, it wasn't discussed that the way perhaps you and I would, you know, would, nowadays with a child, you know, the idea of speaking to someone about what you're feeling and framing it in a positive way, I remember this, them scaring me. It made things worse. They convinced me, you see, that there was something wrong with me. That should, you know, that, you know, can you imagine what that might have felt like? And the abuse and the beatings and the intimidation by this man continued um, over the next three years. And my mother began to see how bad he was treating everyone. Now, I, I don't over-exaggerate, but by the time I was 12, she planned for our escape literally back to Chicago. We left in the dark of night, I remember, when he was away on business, the stepfather, and three of us flew back. It was all pre-planned, and my mother and my older brother uh, drove back. This took tremendous planning. Yet within three months of being back, he followed us back to Chicago, and, and <clears throat> my mother, you know, still addicted to amphetamines and a binge eater, um, she, she took him back. And within one week of that, I developed a rash. They didn't know what it was. It was psychosomatic. It was all, the, it was all anxiety induced. I know that today. And I experienced my first panic attack during this time at age 12. And, um, you know, the, the, the panic attacks were not diagnosed properly. Um, you know, after all, I wasn't a child at that age that could tell or that, you know, that felt comfortable telling a doctor, a primary doctor, what was wrong. You know, the, 
that this, this doctor didn't know my history. He thought it had something to do with maybe some medic, asthma medication I was taking. So they took me off that. And it would be three more years of this hell that, you know, that I lived with um, until I was a sophomore in high school. And, and finally she kicked him out and I, I haven't seen him since. And that was 35 years ago. So I, I, I lay some of this foundation before we get in here to say, you know, slowly but surely, before I ever came to this program, I became emotionally detached. Can you, can you imagine why, you know, in, in the type of, you know, in any type of relationship? But I could sure fool you because I had a bit of charm. That might give one the impression that I had my, my stuff together. Far from it, anxiety and fears were my constant companions. You know, marriage, well, let me say I certainly tried my best with, with the awareness I had at the time through my marriages, but I was self-centered to the extreme and detached and so forth. Let's jump into the big book. <clears throat> you know, you know when, we, when I got here, I didn't realize that I was going to have a spiritual transformation. Um, when we take step three, <clears throat> you know, it's not a particularly complex thing. You see, the big book reminds us on page 64, although this was a vital and crucial step, it would have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. We had to get down to causes and conditions. You see, my fear was but a symptom. You know, to the extent that we're still ruled by resentments, fears, harms done to others, including sexual conduct, we will remain blocked off from the flow of the spirit, which is, is, the, is, is the necessary component we need. So if lack of power was our problem, then doesn't it stand to reason that, that access to that power is going to be our solution? And if I don't believe that, then why in the world would I be motivated to do the work to access that power? I mean, why would I? So on the bottom of page 67, it starts off, talks a little bit about fear, and it says, notice the word fear is bracketed alongside of the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer, and the wife. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives, it was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. See, I did need a new fabric. The fabric of my existence was shot through with it. It permeated everything that I did or thought or said. Fear, anxieties were at the core of it. And it goes on to say it set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. I didn't beat myself with pots and pans. I didn't move myself out to the San Fernando to Reseda, California, separated from my father. I wasn't addicted to, to amphetamines. But, you know, it said, did we not, or did, did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? And, you know, distrustful anxiety occurs <clears throat> when, when my thoughts about what I don't want in the situation outnumber the thoughts about what I do want. And distress is often the result of, of focusing mostly on what, what could go wrong instead of what could go right. And that's, that's what I framed everything in. 
see, most of us, you know, make some distinction between fear and anxiety. And, and sometimes it's merely a matter of, you know, kind of linguistics, the, what the words mean. You know, we, we say we have a, a fear of something, like a, like a fear of flying or fear of aging. Oh, here's a big one, you know, fear of picking up our binge foods. When's the shoe going to drop? I got a fear of that. Anxiety, and then we talk about anxiety about something. So fear of something, anxiety about something. You know, perhaps the same things, flying, aging, relapsing. And sometimes we distinguish the two, you know, by our bodily experience. So, you know, um, th th there's a, you know, biological difference in, in what happens in our body with fear. You know, we have that fight or flight response. But the notion that fear always, you know, means something bigger and stronger than anxiety, you know, breaks down in real life experience. I mean, anxiety, fear, it doesn't, doesn't matter. You know, I can have a short-lived fear response by a, a bee buzzing around my, my face, you know, and, and, and I can wake up at three in the morning and wash an anxiety that, that won't let me get back to sleep. So anxiety, apprehension, fear, terror, however you name it, what matters is how we cope, you know, how we cope with these things. And all I knew was of my own accord, I could not cope with the fear and anxiety. And the noose around my neck of this disease of compulsive overeating was tightening. But I got to tell you, so were the anxieties and the fears. They were, that noose was tightening around my neck too. And the panic attacks would come, you know, and render me, you know, not functional during those times. I was, I, I was tethered like the elephant to the, uh, you know, to the post. So, you know, I, I, I know for me, I needed to have uh, a mechanism in place that I could begin to explore these things. And I want to talk just a moment. We'll move on to the big book, but let's talk about this fear from a more practical level, because I need to understand what's going on. If I'm going to accept that I, I need a complete spiritual awakening to become untethered from fear. So just a little, a little information was helpful to me. You know, you've all heard perhaps this fight or flight response. And when we think about hurt, you know, our body reacts as if it's in danger and it, it activates what's known as this, this fight or flight response. So the body releases chemicals and my, my system gets flooded with these, these naturally produced chemicals that prepare me to respond to the danger through fighting back or running away. You know, and, and the chemicals released are, are these stress chemicals, and they're designed to make us uncomfortable. That's exactly how they're designed, so that we'll do something to get out of that way of danger. But see, here's the problem, and here's how the, you know, here's why the program, the spiritual program helped to change me. See, our body is willing to stand guard each of the hundred times we remember the horrible way, you know, I remember the the horrible way my stepdad treated me or the neglect that I had for my father. My body's willing to stand guard every time that I go back there or the, or the 287 times I describe, you know, in bitter frightened detail, the way my you know, the way, uh, you know, your mother walked out of on the family or 25 years ago, or, or the 18 times we haphazardly worked through these steps, 98% abstinent, mind you, from our binge substances only to meet failure each time. See, our body's ready to stand guard and flood, you know, flood 
with, with those, those stress chemicals. And from an evolutionary perspective, your body will try to save your life when you, you face a saber-toothed tiger, you know, in the room. Your body will also try to save your life if the car in front of you swerves and you have to, to jam on your brakes. You know, we've all been there. You'll be flooded with fear as a natural chemical response because we need every ounce of concentration to the task at hand to survive those challenges. But the problem is, and why I needed this program, was that my body has no need to save my life when I'm remembering with dread and anxiety how you know, unkind you know, I was treated you know, or abandoned. Or maybe your, your child doesn't call you and, you and you get fear or anxious. I don't need the fight or flight response when, you know, when a, you know, or nor do you when, when your boyfriend or your husband threatens to leave you if you continue to eat or, or purge your way the way you've been doing. You don't need the fight or flight response. You don't need that sympathetic nervous system arousal to explain for the 36th you know, time, how unfair it was that your, your, your father loved your sister more than you. So we have to learn through the transformative power of recovery to distinguish the real from the imagined danger of, you know, to function effectively. And here's the thing. We can't learn this critical life lesson when I'm busy blaming others or myself for how bad I feel or how poorly my life has unfolded. You know, I remain in kind of a vicious cycle of hurt, fear, and remorse. You know, but truly, what I can tell you is during those times, I'm blocked off from the sunlight of the spirit. And what the four-step process does is it enables us to stand with courage and conduct a personal kind of archaeological dig, you know, where we're going to uncover some facts about these fears. And we're going to commit to honestly examining these, these facts. And once we get these things down on paper, perhaps for the first time, we're going to face them, not so much from an analytical perspective, because that can leave us stuck in a, in a reservoir of ego, you know. No, we're going, to, we're going to face them from an altogether new and divergent perspective. You know, I, again, I affirmed in step three that I'm no longer running the show. You know, what might happen if I chose to trust an infinite God rather than my limited, finite self. Because I, I learned how to maintain a sense of helplessness in those states of fear, because each time I felt a wave of fear coming on, you know, precipitated, brought about by an irrational thought about some person or situation, I formed a habit and I began to you know, hypervigilantly focus on that person or situation, guaranteeing that the, the fear would grow and it would, you know, metastasize into something even more menacing. Remember, all action is born in thought. And what would happen if I had a design for living that would prevent this fear and this learned helplessness from controlling my life? So getting back to, going back to where I left off in the big book, at the very bottom of page 67, it says, sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with <clears throat> stealing. We think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. That was indeed the case for me. The fear caused more trouble because every time I got into that fear-based thinking, I was further separated from, 
from my higher power. And I, I didn't have clear thinking. And what I would do is something I call, you know, I've heard it said, I, I would catastrophize. Catastrophizing is, is an irrational thought that a lot of us have in believing that something is far worse than it actually is. Catastrophizing can, you know, can take different forms, but, you know, the, you know, it could be, for instance, if you're a, a, you know, a salesperson, let's say, and you haven't made a sale in a while, you may believe you're, you're a complete and utter failure and you'll lose your job. And in reality, it may only be a temporary situation. And there are things that you can do to change the situation. So catastrophizing takes a, a current situation and gives it a truly negative spin. And that's why, you know, the big book is so profound here because when it, ta- when, when we, when it does take that negative spin, it's, it's worse than, than stealing because it causes us waves and waves of trouble. So what do we do? We'll go on on top of page 68. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. We asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. So, you know, with, with this inventory, you know, we're in the fourth step. This is a fact-finding and fact-facing process. So we, I follow these instructions when, you know, when I go through the fear inventory, you know, from the, from the very bottom of page 67 to the top of page 68 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that very first column, it's going to ha- allow us to list for perhaps for some of, us, some of us for the first time, what am I fearful of? Well, I can tell you for me, working that vertically down, I was fearful, as an adult coming into this program, I was fearful, number one, that um, I would be abandoned. I would be rejected. You know, um, you know, my fears for me had to do with losing my job, losing, you know, my, my, my ability to, to, you know, to financially sustain myself and my family. Those were major fears of mine. I had a fear that something would happen to my child. Something horrible would happen to my child. And I swore to myself before I came to this program that I could not survive that. That if something happened to my daughter as a father, I probably, I, you know, I probably would not go on. Every so often I would entertain those fears and I would catastrophize. And the next thing you know, can you relate to this? The next thing you know, it's no longer a possibility, a remote, remote statistical possibility, it's almost a certainty. We take it, we catastrophize, we take it from a a statistical, almost impossibility, but it's still possible. So you're saying it's possible, right, Larry? And then we take it into a certainty and we play that tape in our mind again and again and again. And I needed God's help to begin to, to, uh, to examine those things. So I, I get those fears down on paper, and I have to be honest and thorough with those. I can't give short shrift to this process. I had other fears of being publicly shamed because I was not living my life with congruence. So let me give you an example. For example, 
One of the reasons I had a fear that I would, I would get fired from my job is, I don't know about you, but I played around with things, with expense reports and all manners of working so that I thought my fear was that I would get caught and I would be publicly shamed. And they wouldn't give a damn that I had a PhD in clinical psychology or that I had worked for, you know, for, you know, 20 years in my field and had a good reputation. All they would know was that you had done this, you know, and um, so I had a fear about that. And I felt and I wasn't willing to change those behaviors because my thinking hadn't been changed. See, that was the ego at work. So I had to get very honest in listing those fears. What am I fearful of? I had other fears too. I had fears that I would never be able to have a partnership, a relationship. After all, I was married twice, many other relationships in between and after marriages. Always, you know, for me, sabotaging, self-sabotaging, I'm going to leave you before you're ever going to leave me. And so I had a fear that I'd be alone, abandoned, that if anyone truly knew who I was, you know, that they couldn't, they couldn't be with this person. I led, led a very secretive life in many, in many areas. And binge eating was just one of them. So I had to get honest with those things. So we examine, it says, so we put these things down on paper, right? And we, we, then we, you know, we see if we have any resentment in connection with them. And we examine in the next column, why do I have that fear? Why do I have that fear? And, you know, for me, most of the, the time, the reason I had that fear is because I was placing my trust and reliance on my finite self rather than infinite this infinite higher power. There's a reason that column, the, the second column, why do I have this fear, is pretty short because I don't need to write a thesis here, right? Why do I have that fear? But a, but a, a recovered sponsor, the sharing partner, is going to guide you through that process. We asked ourselves, it says again, why did we have them? Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. And I did have some great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. So it goes on. Perhaps there is a better way. We think so. For we're now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We're in the world to play the role he assigns, just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? So again, in the, in the third column, once I, you know, jot down, you know, all the things about why I had the fear, in the third column, where was my trust and reliance? Pretty simple. It's either one of two places, on my finite self or on infinite God. And for me, I have to tell you that where my fears were concerned, as I listed them one by one, I began to see some patterns here that above all else, I was placing my trust in my finite self or in other finite individuals, looking at ex externals, you know, and, and that's why I would go out when I felt particularly fearful. I would do, what would I do? Well, I binge, 
because that would numb out the feeling. Um, I might go out and buy a car. Sounds kind of crazy, sounds a bit insane, but I did it more than once. You talk about changing my fear. You talk about numbing me out and changing my state. That'll do it. That'll distract me. I also did things. I took trips. Has anyone taken trips because you're fearful? Think you're going to get out of yourself? Guess what? Wherever you go, there you are. I always came with me. I don't care if I went to Disneyland, <laughs> Disney World. I don't care if I went to the Bahamas. I don't care if I went to the Wisconsin Dells. I don't care where I went, wherever I went. It's amazing how I followed myself there. And you know, my problems followed me as well. I needed a different way. Self-reliance didn't work. So it's going to, in, that, in that next little column there, it's going to say, did self-reliance work? Do you know for me, where, where it concerns my fears? I have to be honest, self-reliance never worked. Food worked. Food was a great solution, temporarily. So I had to ask myself, did this work? Was this a resolution to my problem? No, it was a temporary abstinence. You know, whatever I'm using that shows me a bit of love, if you will, that gives me reprieve, temporary reprieve, that, that impacts my, my emotions and my feelings and changes my state or distracts me, that doesn't solve the problem. Self-reliance never worked for me. So then in the next column, I follow the instructions. And there's a fear prayer. And the fear prayer says, you know, God, please remove my fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be. Did I complete that fear prayer? So I'm going to get back into the big book and the the, uh, second paragraph on page 68. It says, perhaps there's a better way. We think so. For we are now on a different basis. The basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him does he enable us to match calamity with serenity. And, you know, that was the case for me, that once I, beg- once I, I did that fear prayer, it wasn't enough to just say the fear prayer, but I did show, I did demonstrate to the higher power of my understanding that I indeed was asking this higher power to remove my fear, but more important than that, to direct my attention to what God would have me be. What would God have me be? And if I completed that fear prayer, and I don't have to apologize for that, it says we never, you know, continuing in the big book, we never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spiritually the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. They, we never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear. Here it is. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once, we commence to outgrow fear. Do you know 
that I used to take uh, quite a bit of medication. I have no problem sharing that with you. I don't feel ashamed by that. My anxiety and my fears were so great that, and the food wasn't working, that I uh, and, you know, and doctors felt that uh, perhaps medication would uh, alleviate that anxiety, would numb me out, would flatten out my emotions to the point that I could cope with those fears. Sometimes we call it a chemical imbalance. I'm not so certain. That's just me. I don't have an opinion for anyone, um, you know, regarding that. But I, I, I want to tell you part of my story, too, that I'm not relying upon those medications anymore for the first time in my life. And about the only thing I can tell you is that once I began to look, and we'll call it our last column here, at what would God have me be? You know, when I would write out that answer, what would God have me be in regards, with regard to each of those fears? See, we, I never took it that far, and I never followed these instructions. These action steps, this specific action is so vitally, was so vitally important to me and is so vitally important to me that prior to that, this program, as I began to learn more and more about it, was just very much conceptual. It was something to analyze, something, you know, to, to, to feed my curiosity, like reading a book about something, but the practical application, doing the work, nah, that's for, that's for suckers, not for me. Why would I really waste my time with that? Not, not unless you can show me first that it's going to, you know, change my life in some discernible way. Show me first. I wouldn't do it. And so how free do I want to be? Well, I wasn't prepared to take those action steps and do the work. This, is wor this work results in having, being inwardly restructured and having a spiritual transformation, a change. It's this very work. And that's why if I work with people today, you know, I tell them that it's all in the work. And we have to get off outcome. I was always an outcome guy. I'll take an action. Maybe I'll take an action, a half-hearted action, if I can get the outcome that I want for me, myself, and I. But it was never about that. These actions actually result in the ego being smashed. And it's, an, it's a right-sizing of the ego by actually having humility to take these actions and being beaten down by various manifestations of this disease, which we're talking about fear. That was a huge one for me that is not any longer. You know, um, it took humility and, and God began to change me. And so now, humbly relying upon him, he enables me to match calamity with serenity. So what calamities? Well, you know, loved ones dying. That's, that, that's, that's an awful calamity. I don't carry the fears and ruminate about the fears of getting sick or, or my daughter getting sick or, or injured. I mean, she, you know, she's 20. She's out with friends. She's, you know, she's driving here and there. I understand that just as you do that things can happen. I'm telling you that I no longer catastrophize. And I don't, when I say I don't catastrophize those things, it's not because I read a book or had been taught on how not to catastrophize. 
That is not what happened to me. What, the reason I believe that I don't catastrophize anymore, the reason why I'm not a slave to my fears and my anxiety anymore, is because God changed me inwardly, restructured me inwardly as the result of these steps. And as a result of that, it just as the promises say, you know, you know, I, I have been uh, able to match calamity with serenity. So now it doesn't, it's kind of like the neutrality around the food. It's not that I don't take proper precautions and throw everything to the wind and no, I, I lead a life of, you know, that I don't, I don't worry about uh, safety or I don't lock the doors or any of these things. No, I, I do all those things. But in the midst of, of, of taking those rational steps that anyone would do, I'm telling you that I'm not ruled by fear anymore. Now, when fear, it's an interesting thing. When fear does come, it is that fight or flight types of stuff. So, you know, it's the proper instinctive use of fear. So, for example, um, just happened to me the other day, unfortunately, calamity comes. Okay, this is a minor calamity, but I'll share this one with you. Here's the calamity. Um, I, I'm driving along in rush hour traffic. It's kind of bumper to bumper. The, you know, it's kind of icy, snowy as it as it as it uh, gets sometimes in Chicago. And um, someone stopped rather abruptly, and I didn't leave enough room. That was my part in it. I I didn't leave enough room in between, and I hit the person in front of me. And uh, you know, everything was fine. Got out of the car, no injuries, no nothing. But in, in fact, not even a scratch to their car. Okay, it was a little scary for the person because you don't expect that. But, um, uh, but where am I going with this? It all worked out fine. But uh, I felt fear the way God intended fear to be felt so that I could concentrate and react quickly with clarity of mind. So I felt, so my, my body was flooded with the naturally occurring adrenaline, right? The different chemicals and so that I could respond. And even though I did have the fender bender, I felt a flash of fear. That's the natural way. But I don't feel the fears that come through, you know, fear of failure, fear of irrational, you know, catastrophizing, all the things that were part of my day-to-day stuff before. That stuff doesn't own me anymore. I'm not the elephant tethered to the post. You know, and, you know, there was a study, not, not a study. Uh, this is a, similar to the tethered elephant I'll share with you. Do you know, I share this with my introduction to psychology classes when we talk about, um, we talk about conditioning and learning. Um, it's a real quick one, and, and that is that, you know, you, you can try this experiment. You can, you can take a goldfish and put them in a, let's say, a 10-gallon tank, pretty big tank for one goldfish, right? And what they did is picture nothing in the, you know, but water in, in the tank and the goldfish. And the goldfish will do what goldfish, what any fish naturally does. It just swims around and kind of explores its environment, and every so often if you feed it, it'll eat, and it'll do other natural things, right? So the experiment was they took, picture a, 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 a piece of measured plexiglass, clear plexiglass that could be slid right down the center of the tank, thereby separating one side from the other, but it's clear plexiglass. And they do that. 
and now the the goldfish swims and it tries to go where it wants to go in the natural explorer and it bumps its its nose if you will uh, its head right into the plexiglass it can't go you know it can see beyond but it can't it, it obviously can't go through there you know that within literally 30 seconds and, and the fish will bump its head on that plexiglass within 30 seconds you can pull out that plexiglass and the goldfish will never ever cross to the other side it's been conditioned it's learned that it can't get through to the other side it's like the tethered elephant to the post that tethered elephant could pull that little rope and pull the post out no problem but it'll never leave and it's just like the the uh you know the uh the goldfish that will only swim on half you know in half of the tank and we are like both the tethered elephant and the goldfish and and and, and to take it further our fears as it relates to that here was a big one for me after coming into the program maybe you can relate i had a fear that this wouldn't work for me i don't care what you say leah i don't care that it worked for you 30 years ago or this one or that one or blah 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 i don't have anything in my experiential evidence to suggest that it'll work for me in fact even though you know i, I even though I, I didn't necessarily hear you when you said that i my, my food had to be down 100 percent I glossed over that and I wondered why as I dabbled in these steps, dabbled in them, doing half measures, still eating my foods. But, but Leah, I was 99.999% abstinent. Self-serving, yes, all these different things. You know, yes, I was kind of dabbling in the steps. Yes, I wanted to jump from, you know, step three to or step one to 12 and, and nine and so forth. And I wanted to do it my way. But come on, can't you just give me a little break here? I've been at this thing for five years. I've put in my time. I show up to the meetings. I put chairs out. Isn't it, wouldn't it be fair? So I had a fear that it wouldn't be fair. And you know, and, and I got nothing. I didn't get anything. I didn't get recovered. So I had a fear that it wouldn't, wouldn't work for me, that I was like the person who, you know, that, you know, you know, that uh, may, maybe I was, you know, not even average, you know, so that it would never work for me, that I was beyond hope. And thank goodness there were people that said, no, I remember, Larry, just what that was like. And I remember feeling that very way. And forget five years, I had been in program 10 years or 17 years, I know people or more. And you know what? Once they were willing to work these steps as laid out in the first 164 pages of this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and do it in sequence and do it abstinently, you know, they got a spiritual change. And now they have, you know, their lives have been transformed. And so I did have a fear about that, that it wouldn't work for me. So, you know, I, I, in wrapping up, um, you know, it, the fears, what I can tell you is I'm a different person today and I am, uh, I'm grateful that there were people that came before me that, that, you know, that let me know that, you know what, Larry, you go through these steps, you do this archeological dig, you do the four steps properly, you too can have this, this recovery. So very grateful with that, and, and with that, I'll pass. Thanks.
Thank you, Larry, so much for your beautiful presentation today. So beautiful. Thank you for developing the big book text for us, what it has to say about fear, and, of course, sharing your personal experience and insights with all of us this morning. Thank you for your service. Larry Kay's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you can stay tuned for that. Right now, we'll transition to questions. If you have a question for Larry regarding the topic of fear, you can press star 1 to unmute. And this is, Lord, this is Laura D. I have a I have a question. Laura D. Hold on, Laura. Anyone G else? G. Thank you. In Oregon. Who in Oregon? Mary A. R. Hi, Shoshana K. Okay. Who else after Shoshana? Mary Beth from New York. Mary Beth. Alex from New York. Alex? Yes. Okay. Carol G. And Carol G. Okay, and Gail T. And Gail T. Okay, that's a good crew for now. All right, Laura G., go right ahead. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Laura G., um, compulsive overeater and other uh, behaviors. Um, Larry, I really appreciate the, um, the metaphor about the fish and the elephant. It also makes me think of a horse. Um, just that strong force that um, I relate to with fear. And I was wondering if you could concisely say um, or explain how, or not explain, but how did you compound and build on each experience that got you to that place where you now feel that strong force like you explained with the, uh, the elephant and I feel with the horse in the fish. Thank you. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Thanks for the question. So, so how did I build upon that? Well, you know, everything that's happened with me, I know that uh, my higher power was at, was at work here. And so, you know, the confidence that I have today in the face of the fears, those things that I, I, I didn't think that I would be, that, that, that I was able to do before, um, it has it has grown, you know, incrementally. It, it, God has, um, I think, you know, the way I, I would say it is that I think that, that God, the more I trust in God, which has happened incrementally over time, the more God trusts in me, you know, and, and the more growth that I experience. So, for example, those it wasn't day one that those fears went away. It wasn't as though, you know, for me, that I completed the four-step inventory moved on, you know, that first time through uh, and proceeded all the way through step nine, had a spiritual change, and then all, all those fears were removed and put down the medication and all those things. It really built over time. And you know what? What I find, and I, I bet you if you talk, I bet you anything, if you talk to other recovered compulsive overeaters, uh, however many years they've been in program, they'll tell you a similar story, which is this thing gets better, man. This thing gets better. It, what I have found is that the fears have lessened, the confidence has grown, the neutrality around the food becomes better, and I'm more willing to serve in a way, not in a self-centered you know, centered way, but in a, truly in a, in a, in a way that, um, you know, that I know that 
you know, that God is doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. So, you know, so I, I have to give this stuff away. So I think the fears, you know, um, eventually, like the, you know, the tethered elephant, I, I became untethered and I was willing to step out for the first time. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I would never, ever have done this before because this would lead to a panic attack for me. This would lead to feelings of uncomfortability. And, you know, I would t- it allowed me to step up towards the cliff. And when they told me, you know, go ahead and jump, and I would think, my goodness, jump, are you crazy? And, 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 then, and then eventually you, you, you step off there and, and then you fly. And that's what's happened to me is, is I, I, more and more I find that I can fly. So I don't know if that helps at all, but stick with it. Stay, stay in the, lean into the steps. Thank you, Laura G., for your question. Was it Lori after Laura G.? I didn't quite catch the name. It was Mary Lee in Oregon. Oh, Mary Lee, of course. Go right ahead. Thank you. Good morning. (sighs) Okay. So, Larry, I I too grew up with a a mentally ill parent, and did you put your higher power on your resentment list over that? Thank you. Yeah, I did. I did. That's that's another great question. Um, I, I I know other people that that have done the same. You know, in in working with other people too. Um, you know, the, the the higher power I put on the list um, because I know for me, uh, in terms of the resentment list, uh, I don't know if you're asking if it was on the fear list, but I had a resentment towards this higher power that I didn't understand why I could be subjected you know, to, to, to this, to these, to this pain and so forth. And, but you know, what's interesting is, and I didn't have a fear associated with my higher power. I just had more of a resentment to a kind of a neutral feeling. And, um, but what I have found is that, you know, it's just become sort of, for me, unmistakable, you know, um, that uh, my higher power was there all the time that I didn't have I think what it was for me to a certain extent was that I didn't have, it wasn't about necessarily reconciliation with those, you know, with that. It, what it was, was just getting to a, a place of forgiveness, you know, forgiveness and recognizing that, you know what, that, that things happen, things happen. There are, there are sick people in this world. And that things happen and that they could be a uh, absolutely a justified resentment, a justified fear. But nonetheless, in order to become untethered from those, I had to have a mechanism in place to let go and to get to a place of acceptance. And, and, and the, I, the paradox for me was, is that that was easier than I thought it would be. It was easier than I thought it would be. So I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you, Mary Lee. Now, Shoshana Kay, your turn. Hi, good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Larry. It was such a beautiful and helpful presentation. And um, you had touched upon a point where you said you were dabbling a little bit in the steps over the years and and, um, not exactly 100% giving over everything that you had in you to 
commitments, and that's exactly where I am right now. I am in my step five, and um, something had snapped in me recently about just the food that I was eating that was abstinent was not really supposed to be on my plan, and I I got honest with that. And So my question is, um, and I was in and out of OA for seven years, so how does someone get to that point of honesty um, without it, I guess, taking seven or more years um, to get really honest? That's my question. Well, thanks, Shoshana. It's a, it's a good question. Um, yeah, that, that's up to you because, um, you know, willingness, um, that may be a scary thing. <laughs> it's like if someone told you, that's up to you, Larry. Willingness is an inside job. See, I heard that. Um, I didn't want it to be, though. I didn't want it to be willingness to be an inside job. I wanted, for me, Shoshana, I wanted at times someone to do it for me, to tell me what to do. And I thought if they would, and they would be either nurturing enough, um, as the case may be, or they would, you know, kick me in the butt enough, you know, that that they could make me willing, but that would never be the case. God was never going to knock on my door and, hey, Larry, good to see you. Let's sit down at the kitchen table. Let me let me lay out the plan for you. You you put in enough time, seven years, five years, fifteen years. It's enough time. Let's sit down and have a have a heart to heart. No, that that wasn't going to happen. See, you know, Shoshana, um, I read it. You've read it many times. I know you have, or you've heard it read. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover, Larry, are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. I didn't want to be such an unfortunate. I really didn't, Shoshana, but but I was, and it took what it took thank God you're still in the fold. Some people go away and die. I know too. I mean, I, I don't mean to, you know, <laughs> to be, uh, uh, you know, to, to make light of it, but uh, I know many people that go away and die. Uh, not, 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 you know, in one day. Um, it, it is sometimes suicide on the layaway plan. They, they, they give up and they, they try other things. And, and eventually if, if you are a true uh, compulsive overeater, if you have a true alcoholic mind like I do, um, the disease, you'll never win in hand-to-hand combat with the disease. About the most you'll be able to do is hold your breath underwater. So for me, the disease had to beat me, as Leah says, you know, bloody me good. You know, I had to come back with tombstones in my eyes, and then I became willing. And you know what? You can you, – today's the day, Shoshana. Today's the day. There's no mistakes. So anyways, who's up next? hope that helps. Thank you, Shoshana, for the question. Mary Beth is up next. Hi there, I'm Mary Beth from New York. Um, Larry, thank you so much for your share and your courage to share everything that you did. Um, it's my desire to be able to be that authentic and share um, things in my life. Um, I so identify with so many things that you shared. Um, I'm overwhelmed. So my question is or anyways if you could possibly speak to um when i come down to the bottom line sometimes when it comes time to i think the emotional maturity of life is that there is you know sometimes the inability to maintain abstinence or to even make a change or to move or to grow is that innate fear that's so deeply embedded and 
when I can get to an honest place of that, it's like there's such a fragmentation of any foundation emotionally. That life has been a, a process of learning how to survive and being becoming very uh, unauthentic and being whoever people wanted me to be. So when I get to that place of being so fragmented, is there hope in this recovery of actually having a whole emotional base and not having fragmentation? That's all. Thank you. Yeah, well, no, thanks for the question. I, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll address it the best I can. Um, you know, the fragmentation you talk, you talk about, I mean, you know, we as human beings, we can compartmentalize things. Um, but I can tell you that I've been restructured. I've been made whole, you know, I've been made whole. And it didn't happen overnight. That's for sure. But um, a big one for me sticking with the fears was a fear of failure in particular because, see, I thought that I, I, I misinterpreted. I know this reflecting back, I misinterpreted. I misinterpreted my willingness or my lack of willingness to put the food down and go through a period of uncomfortability, a significant period of uncomfortability. I know for, for Dr. Bob, it was over two years of, where he felt like picking up a drink, some of us much longer. But um, I think it was... Um, for me, you know, if I was going to become fully integrated, where my walk, walk matched my talk, talk, you know, more congruent might be yeah. how I would say it. If I was going to do, if I was going to become a more congruent, there's no perfectly congruent person, but if I was going to become a more congruent person, as I know I am today, it was going to be with God's help through this program. I know that today. And first and foremost, I was I was powerless over this food, but you know what? I wasn't helpless. I know that today. I wasn't helpless that I could put down the food for, and I could race through steps. I was talking to someone the other day, and they talked about a year kind of working through the steps. And I said, you know, it just it wouldn't work for me. It just wouldn't. The reason it wouldn't, it sounds good. I'd love a year sabbatical. Who wouldn't? But the problem is, is that because of the, the allergy of the body and the much more insidious part of this disease that's talked about in the doctor's opinion, the obsession of the mind, it's the obsession of the mind that you don't, it's not going to give you a year. It might not give you, you know, two or three months before you're going to pick up again. I know that was the case for me. So I had to do that first. And once I did that and trust in the process, trust in the process, it can work. And once you do that and trust in the process and be willing to pay that price, go through the uncomfortability, can you become fully integrated, more congruent? Absolutely. I'm a walking. I, look at what I shared today. Would anybody at all, if I was a, a sociopath, would, you, you might not like it, but would, would you at least understand? Would you at least understand, say, you know, real jerk, but yeah, but at least if I really know what he went through, I, I, I'd say, yeah, I get it, you know, uh, you know, but, I, but I'm not, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, by the grace of God, I'm a decent, caring human being, and my daughter has not had to, I broke the cycle with God's help. My daughter sees, uh, you know, an individual who, you know, is loyal, means what he says, shows up, not emotionally detached, treats, uh, you know, she, she doesn't chase after a man's validation. 
How about that, ladies? Does that happen? Does that happen? Okay, I digress. Hope that helps. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Beth. Alex, your turn. Hi there, Larry. I'm Alex, compulsive eater. Um, and I also was, I just was tremendously moved and, and, and uh, touched and affected by your share. So thank you uh, very much. Um, my, my question uh, goes to what you shared. Um, and I think it's related to, to your childhood as, as, um, uh, I, I grew up with a, with a mother. I saw my mother institutionalized also when I was a child and, and grew up with the terror and fear of seeing a parent and the sadness of seeing a parent sort of struggle with, uh, with mental illness. And so, um, as an adult, when I have gone through kind of my own emotional sort of extremes and struggles, I, I've wondered about, uh, the chemical imbalance that you, um, that you brought up. And so to me, you gave me hope um, when, you, when you shared that, that by working the steps and, and being abstinent, um, that, that that had been addressed. And, and I just wondered um, about the chemical, the physical component of this, whether you think that, um, that there are certain foods that, that also just physically um, bring about those, those emotional extremes and if by eliminating those foods, you also found um, a mental clarity and, and emotional sobriety that um, that came about uh, uh, that that sort of cleared up what would have been diagnosed um, as as a as a mental illness or or an emotional um, illness. Thank you. Well, it's kind of, it's a bit of an outside issue, but I'll say this: it is a good question. Let me, if you if you allow me to answer it this way. Um, I, I put down my, eventually, not right away, I put down the foods that I had an allergy of the body to and, uh, you know, and I had this obsession of the mind. I had to put down my heroin, you know, that stuff, right? Now, now with that, uh, when I embarked on these steps, and I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist, I'll tell you that, and I'm not, not you know, I'm, I work in a secular world. But when I put those foods down and I embarked on this spiritual program, I did not, nothing in my training suggested that this, that there was anything, you know, spiritual about this. This was like group therapy and so forth, but that's not what happened to me. I had a spiritual transformation. I'm not a religious person, but I will tell you I'm spiritual. I had a spiritual transformation that resulted in me, you know, we talked about full integration, being more congruent. I was changed. That's the word. Like anybody else, I was changed. And sometimes you could be too smart for this program. It's a, very, it's a rather simple program. Um, I know that I am not dependent upon um, medications and so forth anymore. I'm not opposed to that for anyone. It's an outside issue. You know, you can call me separate, but I, I'll just say this. This spiritual transformation is real, and it came about as, as the result of working these steps. And if it didn't happen to me, I got to tell you, I wouldn't have believed it possible, but it did. So since it happened to me, if it can happen to me, and yes, I had many, many problems, psychological, uh, uh, physical you know, uh, emotional, and, and, and many of those problems have been, have been minimized to such an extent that, I, that I'm, I'm a truly a changed person. And if it can happen for me, 
I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm betting that it could probably happen for you. So I, but, but if you want to talk more specifics, you're welcome to call me. Thanks. Thank you, Alex, for your question. Carol G., your turn. Thank you, Leah. Good morning. It's Carol G., Compulsive Overy to Recover for today. Thank you so much, Larry. That was awesome. <sighs> can you hear me? Yes. I can hear you, Carol. Good morning. Good morning. This is, there's a bit of a delay on my uh, call this morning. Thank you so much. I really thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, I do actually have a question, and it's at the bottom of that page in the big book. Now, I wondered if you could um, share your experience on how you help others understand themselves in this paragraph, because it says here, fear sets in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did we, not ourselves, set the ball rolling? I get an awful lot of blank looks at that point. Could you help unpack that for me, please? Sure, you bet. Thanks for the question. Um, yeah, it's that's right. It set it. Um, you know, it was an evil and corroding thread. It did. It set in, in, in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune, which we felt we didn't deserve. Again, for someone like me, you know, and I shared some things. Um, you know, from my, my early childhood, okay, that, you know, anyone would say that, you know, that, you know, was, was, was I a victim of, you know, was there some victimization there, things outside of my control? Yes, indeed there was, right? So I use, I always use my example if I'm trying to explain someone else to someone else on how to work that. Um, but the part where it said, but did, did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? Indeed I did. Let me give you an example, Carol. Um, so shared about the, you know, my mother being the amphetamine addict, the diet drugs, all the, the psychotic behaviors and the stepfather and the abuse and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So moving away from the original offense, I was no longer 10. Now I'm 20. Now I'm 30. Now I'm 40. And through something that I didn't, maybe I was victimized as a child, but I began I moved from the abused and I now became the abuser. And, you know, this program embedded in this program is it says we are responsible. We are responsible. So the emotional detachment that I inflicted as an adult on other people, you know, the resentments and, 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 and the, uh, you know, and, and the, um, improper behavior and, and I would, Carol, I would tear someone up with my tongue, you know, never, I wasn't physically abusive, but I was, you know, I was just as bad with my tongue. Boy, can I tear someone apart. And so in the midst of my own suffering and my own self-loathing and all those things and, and, and with one big ball of fear piled in, I began to become a self-centered person who was at the core I had this, I was dishonest, I was selfish, I was fearful, you know, I had all these, uh, these core things. And so I needed, I needed a mechanism, Carol, I needed a mechanism in which to be rid of those core manifestations of our disease. And only through connecting to a higher power where that source of power could flow through me would I be able to do that? And that, and it was through these steps what we call recovery. It's through this recovery process that that happened to me. 
I think, lastly I'll say, I think sometimes people become disenchanted because they, they, they look at that, just what you read, and they say, look, I didn't, I didn't do this. I didn't, you know, my husband cheated on me. I didn't cheat on him. So what do I need any of this for? He needs the program, not me. And I could have said the same thing. I didn't, I wasn't addicted to amphetamines. I didn't create this, but you know, what, how are we living today? And if we can connect the dots and say, but we need to be responsible today. And so that's how, I, how I'm able to, to transition from that. I use my personal experiences and then look towards how I was behaving because all action is born in thought. So since my thinking was, was self-centered, my behaviors were self-centered. And I did go out and cause a lot of harm. So I, I hope that helps a little bit, Carol. I don't know if it did. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. It does. Thank you, Carol G. And we'll go to Gail T, please. Hi, Larry. This is Gail T in Texas. Uh, a lot. Can you hear me okay? Yes. I can. Okay, good. Well, a lot of um, the questions really help me. I um, am in a fourth step. I do them annually. And this fourth step, just on the resentments right now, brought me in the meetings, you know, our daily meetings. And it's just such a miraculous thing, this vision for you. Is it brought me to this? I'm going to get to the question, but I'm going to give you where I'm at. Is that it brought me to the place where I can no longer justify my rightness? So, like, justify why I was right to have these resentments, and if there's no one to blame, and so that we, and then your your talk brought up how all of that has tethered me, and that you know, really bothers me because that really hits into my self-esteem because I'm Miss Freedom. My middle name is Miss Freedom and this has just tethered me to be in, you know, all the conditions of the overeater. And, And so because of the last question, I've had some relief, but here, here's where the question is, is I'm in a lot of discombobulation right now. Some of it, a lot of it started with the medita- the 30-day meditation retreat, but now this is really happening because I'm discombobulating my, I'm releasing the anchors of my life. And a lot of those anchors were because of self-reliance and now going to a power greater than myself without any, uh, like, I don't want to put any hinges on it. I just want to be free from my power to help me with that. And I'm very, I'm very scared. I'm, I'm, I'm like lost at sea in a way because I don't, you know, I don't have anyone to blame anymore. And I can't even blame myself. That was like the really good thing. If you can't blame others, you can't blame yourself. So when, when I'm there, I'm just untethered. And then what happens in that? How fast does it happen, Larry? <laughs> Am I making myself clear? I think so, Gail. I think so. Yeah, I can. I could definitely relate to what you're saying. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, and we agnostics on page 57. It, it, at the at the very end, it says, 
Even so has God restored us all to our right minds. You know, and, 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 and to some of us, this revelation was sudden. It wasn't for me, Gail. Some of us grow into it more slowly. Um, yeah, there's, there's even fear, and you talk about this, you know, becoming discombobulated. There's fears when, you know, what you're feeling, I can guarantee you there's someone on the line that feels that very same thing because they're putting the food down. That was the, that was the post that was their, 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 you know, their, their, they were tied to that and they, and they felt some comfort. There are people, you know, that, that feel emotional comfort in being in abusive relationships because it's all they know. Now, I don't want to get off on a side issue, but just to say, to tie it back to program and what we're talking about in the big book is, is that, you know, um, that it's okay for me, it was okay to, to feel a bit discombobulated. I felt it when I put the food down. I felt it when I began to, to do the, this inventory, this archaeological dig. When we start to meditate in a more deep, deeply profound way and, and, and different, you know, it, it's a little bit uncomfortable, you know? Right, Gail, I don't know if this helps at all, but right now, somewhere in the world, well, we don't have to go far, Someone right in your city there is coming off heroin and they're ready to crawl out of their skin, Gail. They're ready to crawl out of their skin. They're hallucinating. They're sweating. They're vomiting. They're, 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 they think they're going crazy. The anxiety is too much to bear. But they have to go through that period of uncomfortability to get out on, you know, to cross that bridge to freedom. And what I would say in our program, which is a spiritual program, is that that discombobulation that you speak of, you do, God will give you the, your higher power of your own understanding will give you the strength to get through that. And you could come across on the other side of the bridge and you're going to look back. I say this from experience because it happened to me. And you're going to look back and you're going to say something that felt so horrible, you know, and, and such a shift, like a, like, like a, like a, like a earthquake, you know, the ground underneath you is shifting. It then it settles down, and all there is is you and your higher power, and there's a comfort and a peace, and it's it's like a homeostasis. You get back to to your core of who you are. So I would say the biggest thing is to to rely on the fellowship, but then to lean into your higher power at these times. I hope that helps, Gail. Yeah, it did. Thank you, Larry. Sure. Thank Hi. you very Any much, questions? Gail. Yes, we'll take. Two more questions at Hi, this Vivian. point. Gladys Vivian. L. Kathy K. Karen H. Oh, my. Gladys L. Oh, goodness. Okay, hold on. <laughs> hold on. Okay, I heard Vivian. And then there was somebody before Kathy K. Gladys. Gladys. Sharon H. Okay, and we'll wrap with that. Vivian, go right ahead. Thank you. Thank you so much, Larry. I really, really appreciated uh, hearing your story this morning. Um, my question is this. Um, uh, I'm working the steps. I'm on step 10 now with my sponsor, and um, I've come to a place with my relationship with a higher power that's very different than it used to be years ago in the program. And... Um, I sometimes feel so internally and spiritually connected that it's such a blessing and a gift. 
And then sometimes it just leaves so fast. And um, I can access it, but I need time and space to do that sometimes. And I was wondering your experience. Um, is, it, 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 is it a process for you? Is it, can you always access it? Is it always with you? Um, and if not, how can you do it? I guess that's my answering it to myself. I want a quick fix answer for that too. Uh, but I would like to do it in a way that it's consistent with me. And how, how do you deal with that in your life? Sure. Uh, th- thanks for the question. You know, the, um, so true what we read um, on page 567, you know, that it talks about the spiritual experience, you know, the term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening, you know, it says are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. And so, um, you know, for me, uh, what I've noticed in my life is that it has changed over time. But the one thing I can tell you is it wasn't a sudden, sudden, you know, uh, white light experience for me. And so my relationship has changed with my higher power. I'm able to take it easy more now. I know that's such a simplified statement, but, you know, I know that God is present. I've, I've seen God's work in my life today through this program. Never before. I I had an awareness of God, but not a relationship with my higher power in a way. So is God with me uh, each day? Sure. You know, do I, do I attempt to discern what God's will is for me each day and then ask for the power to carry that out as we do in step 11? Sure. I do those things. And how do I do those things through prayer and meditation? And, and that's all unique to, to us, each individual. We, there's no half dues in, in how we go about that um, in forming and in, in expanding that relationship. But I have seen it change. And I need, I'll tell you a big thing for me, like, uh, you know, if anyone thinks that, uh, that, I, that I share, well, let me just abuse anyone of this notion <laughs> that I share, you know, most days to hear myself talk and to, um, to get popular in a way, um, I can assure you that's not the case. Um, it, it has to do with uh, actually something for me. Um, if I help someone else, that's great. You know, as with most things, I see that it, it kind of works both ways. But I do it every day uh, because it's like working that muscle. I need to do it because as I articulate um, those things and share, um, I grow and I learn, and then I listen to other people and so forth. Like even doing this, you know, I'm going to hang up being a better person, growing from the questions and sharing and so forth. So that's been part of it too, is finding a way. I'm not suggesting everyone has to share and do all these different things, but I'm saying that finding a way, whatever way over time that you can connect with your higher power every day, for me, I find the best way is when, and I use this very loosely, teacher, very loosely, because there's no teachers really. But, you know, we become the best practicers when we're teaching because we want to learn enough about it and, and, and practical application in which that we can then help other people with it. So um, I think that is, has been how I've uh, expanded and developed and become more trusting with my higher power. Um, each day is by being so active with the program. So I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you very much, Larry. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Vivian. Gladys, your turn. Good morning. Um, 
Larry. I heard most of your uh, lead this morning, but I kind of missed the end of it. But what my question is, I mean, I've uh, identified with a lot of your stories, um, you know, being raised by a neurotic mom um, and developing a lot of fears and phobia. So the first time that I worked the the steps with the sponsor out of the big book, and I lifted some of my fears. Um, Some of them, most of them, I, I had a long list. And most of them I, I overcame, but then I relapsed, and um, I ended up in a couple of other 12-step programs. But what the situation is now is that one of my fears, fear of animals, um, is, is, is starting to really be a big problem, and it's affecting my work. So, But at the same time, I feel like, my higher power spirit telling me, like, um, you know, it's time for you to address this fear. So basically what my question is, is um, should I just do something to move forward with that, like, just with my higher, with what I'm getting from my higher power, or should I address that working uh, through the steps again with the sponsor? Oh, Gladys, thank you for the question. Yeah, I, I know that I, I different different fears can you know can crop up. We we know in step ten even it tells us not if things are going to crop up, uh, but when you know when you know uh, dishonesty, uh, fear, self seeking you know motives and so forth when they crop up. So you mentioned about fear of animals. I, I've had different fears that can crop up from time to time. Um, it's a perfect opportunity for me. Uh, you know, to, to work the 10 step, but also I have no problem whatsoever um, going back. Um, I don't need a special invitation, Gladys, uh, from anyone to go and uh, take a fear and go through the formal four-step process. It is a good idea, certainly, to, to work that with someone who's, who's been through that process and can guide you through that process, and we have these sharing partners, these these sponsors to help us through there. But I, I probably, if it were me, I'd probably do a formal four-step on that particular one and, and look at what the fear is, what, why do you have the fear, you know, where are you placing your trust. I know for most of my fears, it's going to be on my finite self rather than infinite God. You know, have we, you know, is self-reliance working? Have we done the fear prayer? And then ultimately, I guess the question, I'll leave it at this class, you know, something for you to look at, which I think would be important. You know, what would God have you be? Would God have you be this higher power of your own understanding? Would that higher power have you uh, uh, fearful of animals? You know, is that serving you? Can you be of maximum service to God and to those about you when you have a fear of those animals? And and that's for you to kind of work through. So I I, I hope that helps. Yeah, it does. Thank you. Thanks, Gladys. And Kathy Kay, your turn. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Larry. It was wonderful to hear you today. And my question actually piggybacks nicely with Gladys. Uh, I my experience of the fear inventory uh, is that at first that last question, "What would God have me be?" Um, was very difficult for me to answer. And um, 
several years later, I it now comes pretty easily to me. It's almost as if, you know, I have a better intuitive process that allows me to, once I turn my attention to God and say the fear prayer, it becomes very clear very quickly what I need to do instead. I'm just wondering if that's your experience. And also, um, you know, I find my sponsees have a lot of difficulty with that question. And what, if anything, we can do to help them deepen the answers to that. Kathy, thanks so much, my friend. Um, yeah, that, that's that's a terrific question. Um, that last column there, what would God have have you be? Yeah, I, I think when I I know for me, um, as I had shared with Gladys, I kind of kind of gave a, a little bit about how this has worked in my life. Is you know when I when I am in fear, you know, it's not that I, I I'm going to deny that fear, uh, but when I have a fear. You know, and I ask myself, what would God have me be? I don't need to have a crystal ball to determine what I think. You know, what what would God have me be? And I can let that coalesce a little bit. And I know what it's usually come down to for me is that I cannot be, sometimes I have to, it's a process of elimination. How in the world when I'm walking around and fear that I'm going to lose my job, even if it's legitimate, right? Could be. You know, but how, if I'm asking the question, what would God have me be, how am I going to be able to be of maximum service to God and to those about me when I am enslaved by that fear? So I don't even have to go beyond that to say, okay, so Larry, this is where my mind goes, Kathy. It goes, so what are you going to do about it, Larry? It's not asking me that. It's not asking me what would God have me be and how would God have you solve the problem for you? You know, I can read a lot more into that. It's just, I know that God would not have me walk around in utter fear. You know, um, you, you know, uh, I have to tr- I have to place my trust and reliance on infinite God rather than my finite self. And I have found over time, I have found over time that it's become easier. And I do, Kathy, naturally go into that mode where I I recognize right away that God would. Would, would, would have me, would release me from that fear. You know, fear uh, of economic insecurity, it, it, you know, fear of, of, of people and of economic insecurity, it, it, you know, it was brought to my attention years ago that it, it didn't mean that economic insecurity will be removed. Far from it. But the fear of that. So sometimes I can have economic insecurity in my life, yet I am not enslaved by the terror and the fear of that and in this way then i can operate more effectively so that's how i try to guide people mm. through that and as well I, I don't know if that helps kathy yes thank you very much larry thank you thanks kathy k and our final question for the morning comes from sharon h Oh, um, thank you. Thank you. This is Sharon H., recovered in Colorado by God's grace in these 12 steps. And thank you, Larry, for your experience, strength, and hope regarding this uh, fear and the corroding thread that it consumes our lives. And I have gone through the steps so many times, but I have seen that at each period of time, sometimes gradually, sometimes quickly, 
that fear, it still is my first reaction. However, it does not enslave me. I don't live in it. And I was working with someone uh, last week, and we're going through the fourth, fifth, and sixth, and seventh step. And she has she came from a very horrific childhood, and she was trying to go back and see, based on that, as a child where she was selfish, self-seeking, and I was trying to explain to her that as a child, we don't have the cognitive ability to think, oh, this family is really sick. I'm going to go live with Smith down the street. So it becomes a matter of survival. I just was curious as to what age would you uh, suggest that someone uh, now must take total responsibility for their own behavior, knowing that that kind of bondage blocked them, and God, as we understand God, will free them from that as well as today in their lives presently. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks for the question. Yeah, I don't know that there's a specific age in mind, but I just know for me, um, you know, I was, uh, I, I had to, I was responsible as an adult, you know, and, and, and to develop my courage, I had to overcome the fears and that had to happen. You know, when I came into program as an adult, that had to happen. Um, and the best way for me to do this through this program, you know, arguably was the, the same way as one might overcome an allergy. And I'm not using that term allergy, like allergy of the body, but, but by exposing myself um, in ever increasing doses to those things that I was fearful of. You know, to, you know, and, and, and through that, you know, in a similar fashion, I became, through God's help, I became more courageous in my adulthood by exposing myself in a measured way, you know, desensitizing myself in a sense to those things that I feared, you know, and, and it was only through this program and with God's help through these steps that I could begin to do that. In other words, I couldn't use any specific technique because I wouldn't, ex I wouldn't expose myself to develop that courage, Sharon, if my ego wasn't reduced. Because as long as my ego is, is oversized, as long as my ego was supersized, that was my big, you know, remember the supersized food? Well, my ego was supersized. And as long as it remains supersized, then I would never cultivate the courage in which to, you know, get out there. Because, because for me, it was through the fear. And I had to become an adult once and for all. I couldn't, you know, forget the fact that, you know, 30, 40, whatever age, it was at a certain point, either I was going to allow God, through God, to develop the courage to deal with these fears, or I was going to crawl under a rock, and I was going to stay tethered, as, we, as I began this talk, <laughs> tethered like the circus elephant or the goldfish to, to one side of the fish tank never knowing that I could actually, my life would, would remain forever small rather than it's become so much larger. You know, even though I'm not, I'll, I'll finish with this, Sharon, even though I'm not going out and buying a dozen donuts as I used to, you know, to some they might say, well, your life must be pretty restricted and pretty small. No, it's, you know what I mean, Sharon, it's bigger and larger and I lead a much more courageous, fuller, congruent life than ever. And that's, I owe all that to God. So I hope that helps, uh, Sharon. 
Thanks, Larry. That really answers my question. And it's through this process that we begin to see fear for what it is. And by God's grace, we're able to let go of it. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Sharon, for your question. Thanks to everyone who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Larry, for sharing the new fabric of your existence with us this morning as the result of the 12 steps. We thank you for your generous spirit and service on this line always. Thank you. And I'll close the meeting from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.